You're listening to Technical Outcast. I'm your host, Steve Reagan. Today, we're going to be talking to Jake Miller. He's the lead security researcher at Bishop Fox. We're going to hang out and uh, discuss pen testing. So sit back, and we'll be right back. Jake, buddy, how are you? Thanks for joining me. Uh, doing great. Thanks for having me. So it is a Monday morning, and looking outside my window here, man, it's it's dreary and rainy, and, and it's full-on fall. So we're going to talk some interesting geek stuff. How about that? Love that. <laughs> now, <clears throat> Bishop Fox is a, a well-known company in the, the security industry, so there's it's one of those things like no introduction needed. However, here recently, you've done uh, some some interesting work in explaining the nuance behind pen testing and what that means. So I guess my, my, my first question for you is, when it comes to like pen testing and, and engagements with your clients, have you ever had a client that was just like, what is a pen test? Like, what exactly does that mean? How do you explain that to them? How do you explain the concept of a pen test? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I, I think it really starts with, you know, talking to that company and understanding what their goals are for their security program. What, what are you looking to improve or change or wh where are you trying to head towards with your security program? And once we start to have that conversation, things start to fall out and we start to figure out what we might want to accomplish. You know, if they're launching a new product, maybe it's taking a look at that product before it comes to market. Uh, maybe it's looking for a certain type of uh, info. Maybe there's customer data in a unique way that we want to take a look at. Or maybe there's some type of unique functionality. Um, and from there, you know, I think we work together and we come up with a, a plan to meet those goals. So then I guess, and, and that makes sense. Like you got to, you got to come up with a plan, which actually leads me to, uh, I guess one of many follow-up questions based on that <laughs> answer is like, what kind of a plan? What defines a, a, a solid plan? Like if you were to, to run through um, best practices, tips, whatever, what, what advice do you have for developing a plan if you're going to actually do a pen test and have an assessment work? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, uh, co companies don't always take advantage of having that kind of early conversation just about kind of like what they're looking for and just kind of what things they're looking to accomplish in general. But I, I think that's where we really can come in and help. Um, and so I touched a bit on this in the defining the scope of your pen test article that I wrote on Bishop Fox blog, uh, just for readers who want to see more. Um, but really, the first part is figuring out um, what are the different components of your product? Do you have um, a heart? Do you have a physical, maybe an IoT product? Is there the backend web service to that? And you know, we, we want to help you try and find all the security vulnerabilities. Want to help look at that architecture um, and, and just really help figure out what are the different places where things could go wrong. So then, when you're you're looking at that and you're trying to um, prioritize based on like requirements, risks, weaknesses, things like that, like. What is a good gauge for starting that? Like, should I look at risk first or should I look at like weaknesses or requirements for the test itself? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that probably requirements are, are one of the first things that come to mind. You really, sometimes there might be certain uh, compliance requirements. There might be certain data that you're responsible for protecting in a particular way. Um, those are usually the first things we will hit on and really make sure to take a look at how some of those, that data is stored. And then from there, we start to get to that next step of, can we get access to it? Can we get unauthorized um, permissions or privileges within that application? So then how do you set um, like scope? Like what's, what's a, good, a good way to set the depth of the test? Like how, how far should an organization go? Like, should they just turn everything off and let you go wild just to see what's broken and, and like how things work? Or should they define like straight up scope all across the board? It seems to be split in the industry when you talk about this stuff. You'll hear some say that scope's bad for a pen test because a real attacker won't follow any sort of scope. And then you hear others say that scope's required because you can't break production. You can't like risk putting the company in jeopardy because you're running a test. Where, where do you stand on that? How does that play out? 
Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. And, you know, from the consulting industry, one thing that we often talk about is scope creep. Um, so defining a scope is, uh, it, it's really cru crucial to kind of have those boundaries um, so that we spend the, our time in the area that the, you know, that our client cares about. Because if we start looking, you know, on a totally different product that's kind of tangentially related, uh, we'll miss the whole pen test. So really understanding what those trophy targets are or those assessment goals, uh, we can really drill down on that. Um, so yeah, I think when it comes to a scope and how deep, it really depends on what, what the goals are. The goal is to really probe deep on maybe a particular piece of middleware or maybe the authentication system, or we wanna really look at the product as a whole. And one thing a lot of pen test companies will do just to add to that is that if we start to see findings in something kind of off to the side, we'll, we'll drop a couple of those in that report and just let you know, like, hey, we saw some things that looked a little fishy over here. You may want to do a focus pen test on that target later. All right. That makes sense. That makes sense. So when, when this kind of parallels with the, the topic of scope, but it, it, you had mentioned something earlier <clears throat> about uh, multi-tiered assessments. and. Yeah playing around with uh, different roles. Can you explain a little more about that? Like what is a multi-tiered assessment? Yeah, so we, we actually kind of came about when we had a customer come to us and they were curious what we could do from different vantage points. So they're like, all right, we'd love to do a test and we'd like to structure it like this. We'd like to have you guys come at it with no credentials, no access to anything. We're gonna give you the URL, you go. And then from there, we would be able to pull back the layers because we had access to different uh, different levels of permission. So we would simulate coming at it from each level of depth. And the cool part was we even got down to where they would have us um, SSH onto their server and start looking at from a, you know, suppose there was a compromise, what could they do as the web server user? And the cool part about doing a test like that is you're seeing your application parts you may never see. Because a lot of times on an application pen test, by the time the team might get remote code execution, you're right at the 11th hour of that pen test and it's just wrapping up. So you'll never actually get that perspective of, you know, once they're on that server, how far can we take it? Um, and I think that's where it really provides a lot of value. So another thing that you had written about <clears throat> that caught my attention the other day when I was reading all this stuff was uh, test the security, not the obscurity. Yeah. And I love that, you know, because a lot of people, uh, we joke, but realistically in the industry, you'll see a lot of people that, that rely on obscurity for their, their ultimate defense. Like if you don't know it exists and I don't tell you anything about it, then it can't be hacked. Ha ha ha. And the thing is like, most people have a trouble, have trouble just identifying assets on their network anyway. Like there, there are hundreds of machines and little things that are sitting out there that you don't even know exist. And that's how the attacker is getting into your network. It has nothing to do with what we see on your, your public scans. And so give me a little more background on this. I, I really identify with this whole concept. So explain what, what you mean by test of security and not obscurity. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I, think, I think there's a couple ways to look at that one. Uh, you know, just talking about the asset example we were just mentioning, um, if you start to have services and all sorts of non-standard ports, um, yeah, maybe you're, you're start, at a certain point, you're going to get confused yourself. You're going to start to lose track of what you even have. Um, and then other times, you know, we'll see an application and there'll be, oh, I don't know, like maybe it's a mobile application. There'll be some obfuscators on it. And we're going to have to spend, you know, a bunch of hours just untangling the obfuscation. But at that point, you're not really paying us to pen test. You're really paying us to test how good this obfuscator works. And that you may never get a security vulnerability because we're spending our time, you know, untangling <laughs> that. So we've played with some of the the technical aspects of pen testing. Now let's let's step back and look at like process and paperwork. You know, the boring sure. elements of some of the pen tests that are out there. Um, when it comes to actually running engagements, you made a mention uh, early on about filling the environment with test data and ensuring that the development team is available. So why are those two concepts important? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's something that I definitely see get tripped up on uh, people doing some of their first pen tests. So they'll spin up a test environment and they'll hand it off to us and we log in and there's no data. There's no other simulated customers 
It's like, how can we access another customer's data if there are no other users in the platform and there's no data in the platform? So creating a production-like environment in every way that is possible really helps us to be able to find findings that will mirror production and also saves us the time of having to figure out you know, how many, you know, manually creating user accounts, trying to upload data with those accounts. I mean, that can take a long time. For the lawyers and compliance people, uh, we both would like to stress that this data you fill your test environment with should not be actual customer data. It should be fake data that has no relation to anything. So there's your nickel piece of free <laughs> advice. Don't, don't leave a test environment standing up with actual data in it. That will never go well for you. Um, what about the development team, like keeping them available? Yeah. I mean, that, 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 that's huge. I mean, like, uh, when we have pen tests and maybe we have a Slack channel and we have the developers in that Slack channel, you know, as we start to see things or as we run into trouble spots, um, sometimes just having that direct access allows us to problem solve quicker than having to go through maybe a project manager or they're just able to fix something. So maybe the development environment has like a bug in it and, you know, some API is not on. <laughs> So then that rolls right into like making sure that you have all of the development documentation and like customer facing stuff as well. So like everything that they would give to a customer or everything that they use internally when you're testing this, these, these environments, you get, you should get all that as well then. Right. Yeah. And, and like my favorite piece of advice to give is pretend you're onboarding a new developer. Mm -hmm. What would you do if you were hiring a new developer? You'd give them access to all of the you know documentation you give the customers, the things you're using internally, your test suites and tools, just anything you can give us. Pretend we're just a new developer and we'll, we're on the same team. We're going to come help you out. Okay. Well, that, that actually <clears throat> goes into another point you made is the fact that the breakers also need to know how to be builders. It's not enough to just smash a product. You have to be able to explain how to fix it. You're like, here's a problem. Here's what I did to exploit this problem. Here's how you fix that problem. Like you, you want to give both sides of the coin. You don't just want to walk in with a big hammer, smash things and then walk away. Like, haha, you, I broke all your toys. Have a nice day. Pay me. That's not how it works. It's supposed to be an entire cycle. So how long does a typical engagement last? Like, is there any set defined limits? Is it always constantly retesting? How exactly should that work? What should somebody who's new to this entire experience listening to this, what should they expect? That's a great question. And that's going to vary by consultancy. You know, uh, uh, at some consultancies, they use a like a fixed time box assessment for uh, every assessment. Um, and they just kind of use that as their standard. Uh, other consultancies like at Bishop Fox, we kind of customize it based off the goals that the client is bringing it to us and a realistic amount of time to accomplish those. Sometimes we'll use a mix of time boxing and maybe a stretching out to just kind of figure out what would be the right amount of time to look at something. If we're looking at cryptographic implementation, you know, we might not spend a couple of days on that. That might, you know, that might take a couple of weeks. And you know, we, we will definitely want to have some collaboration on that. So it, it's figuring out the right time for the right product. Looking at the more of the paperwork side, um, <clears throat> you'd made a note about clear and actionable deliverables. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So uh, this is, I think this is one of the ways that, you know, you have the bug bounty scene um, kind of differentiating from consultancies. They both offer really valuable things and they're both a little different. One of the benefits about consulting is that our goal is to get you from showing you the vulnerability all the way through remediation. Cause we've seen the system, we know how it works and we're thinking about how would this work well for this customer? And that's how we create that tailored recommendation. So, I guess without giving, giving, uh, giving away any of the secret sauce, what, give me an example, like an anonymized example of how you would do a, like what a customized deliverable looks like. What's a, what's a good example of just a random engagement? Yeah. Um, let's, let's uh, think about something. Um, yeah, so uh, a, a, pro a product that you'll see quite a lot, there's quite a few different, uh, like CRM and CRM type competitors. Um, and so there's certain features they're going to want. Like I, when I think of a CRM, I think that like in the web app, a lot of time they like to integrate email. They want to have their email reader there so you can see everything without having to leave the app itself. So that's a common feature. Because of that, they're going to have certain risks and they're going to want to maintain certain business features and not get rid of them. So when you start to talk about rendering emails 
and you're not an email provider, there's all sorts of XSS that you're not familiar with and <laughs> code execution that can happen because you don't, you're not used to handling all the different things that could show up in a, in a random email. So that's a feature they need to keep. So when we create those tailored recommendations, we've seen some of these things before and we start to talk about, all right, you know, we had this other customer, we know they solved it this way, it worked really well for them and we couldn't find any issues with it. So maybe consider an approach like this. Okay. All right. That makes sense. That makes sense. So <clears throat> no conversation about pen testing would be complete without some sort of war story or interesting anecdote from the field. So here's your hard question. The one that puts you on the spot. All right. Tell us a story. <laughs> sure. Um, I, I think one of my, one of my favorite findings I've had that um, that I ended up publishing uh, for for some research and kind of brought me deeper down the research path um, was this it was it was a spreadsheet injection. So I saw um, I had a different a couple different websites that were uh, using Excel spreadsheets in different ways. Um, one of them was just there was a part where it was uploading documents, and so you'd upload you know PDFs and you know Word docs. Um, and then it would render it as an image and it would store it on your, they'd store a little preview image. I thought that was interesting because I started to look at the file format supported and there was just a laundry list. So then I looked at Excel spreadsheets and I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. So then I'm like, you know, Excel spreadsheets, as we know, you know, they have their own little, little programming language in there. So I tried something simple. I put like equals one plus one. So uh, I, up I uploaded it and I saw two. I was like, interesting. Wait, 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 wait. So when you uploaded the Excel file with the, the macro formula in there, the the exchange that happened on the back end processed the math for you and put it up? Right. So I'm seeing that preview <laughs> image that's showing me a picture of my Excel document. It's showing two. So then at first I'm like, you know what? Maybe it was a fluke. Maybe it was already evaluated and I'm just psyching myself out. And I saw they also supported CSV documents, you know, the comma separated equivalence of Excel. I'm like, all right, this should never get processed, right? It's just a CSV document. So I do equals one plus one, and then I just do a comma because CSV, I upload it and I see two again. And I'm like, <laughs> oh shit. Oh, this is great. <laughs> so then I'm like, all right. So using, you know, the thing we've been using, you know, since science class, you know, right? Like these, this formula, all these formulas and stuff. I'm like, all right, what kind of formulas do we have in Excel? Because this is not a macro. This is the actual formula. Formula, like the equal right. stuff that you can do in, in individual tables. Cells, right, yeah. yeah. So I start, I start looking around and I remember uh, a really great client side attack uh, that was called CSV injection. And so the way that worked is, there are formulas like uh, that allow you to kind of reach out and fetch data. So that was one way I could start to make internal requests on their network doing that, but I wanted to take it further. And there is an actual API from way back in the day called uh, Dynamic Data Exchange, DDE. And that was meant, for example, if you were gonna have an Excel spreadsheet that automatically updated with the output of another program. So let's say you wanted to use it to uh, process like stock tickers or something. So you have a program generating information running on your computer and then you'd start to just aggregate uh, display that information in excel so it lets you reach out and call another program so <laughs> you can see where this is going i ended up writing uh <laughs> i basically i i went and wrote a command exe command to uh, retrieve a remote powershell you know payload got a reverse shell and i got code execution on that server <laughs> <laughs> And that went all the way through to cloud takeover because I got some AWS keys and then just kept escalating from there. Oof. Oh, man. And then one more on that one. It got one step crazier. I saw a few different variants on that one. Um, another one I saw, I had no outbound HTTP. I only had outbound DNS. So in that case, I couldn't actually make a request back to my PowerShell uh, script. But what I ended up doing is if uh, for you know DNS lookups, you type in the name of a website, it looks up. There's a type of thing called a text record where you can kind of have arbitrary information for a DNS name. Yeah. And I started, I transferred a whole uh, payload over DNS text records and then got code <laughs> execution that way. And I had a and I was sending information back and forth over DNS servers. <laughs> Could you imagine like later someone's looking at the logs and like what what is this why why what 
what a lot just, of funky subdomains there. Like, what just <laughs> happened? What? Why? <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so, I mean, awesome. that, that was—I think that was just a wild finding. It really starts to show how things that you would think are only on the client side, security is so contextual. As you start moving things towards cloud environments, all this—all the assumptions you made are broken, and everything yeah. changes. Yeah. See that—that that was early on, and I say early on because I'm an old man, and and. I remember the days before the cloud, you know, I remember when the cloud was just somebody else's computer, like that ta-da, right. cloud. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so it, it's really comical. Like one of the things I used to say is like, look, how you defend your network in the office and your cabinet room over there is not how you defend a cloud environment, two separate things, but you're trying to apply this concept to something that's completely foreign. And you're going to see like this repeat of all the problems we had before on the regular network that's extending to the cloud. Now, congratulations you're repeating history. And it's not that you didn't learn from it. It's just that you're not, you're not prepared to deal with the different environments. Like when it came to infrastructure, it's where I started off in IT. There's two different infrastructures involved here. So naturally the flaws yeah. are going to be completely different as well. Even if they're related, they're not the same. So you have to, I guess for lack of a better term here, you have to basically just sit down and bust your ass and figure out, you know, like, Hey, I got to fix both of these things at the same time, but I only have budget for one. So haha, what do I do? And um, basically you just kind of pray to the cabinet gods and hope that they, they allow you to get through the day without a fire. Um, <clears throat> so let's, let's look at your example story. I'm really curious when you provided that report, how, how basic was the fix? Was this a, an easy fix to, to just, get up and running by limiting the scope of what file types were accepted and what these files were allowed to do? Or was this, you know, something more complex, like it was ingrained into the entire app that required like ripping out whole chunks of code and basically scrapping everything? Like how, how would you fix something like that? That's a really good question. So the hard part is it's a business requirement. And the hard part was basically I asked them, I'm like, so my best guess, I, the first thing I did after I got code execution was what happened? So I started looking on the server. They were actually instrumenting a version of like, uh, like Excel. And I've seen this now a couple of times with a couple of different, on uh, a couple of different places. But what happened is they were actually passing the documents through Microsoft Excel and exporting them. It was all instrumenting. And the problem with that is, is that the whole thing that wasn't considered was what, what will happen with Excel or what might Excel might have its own processing language. And uh, it even came down to where they really wanted as a business function to have those formulas evaluated. And, but when we had a conversation, I explained that the formulas are cached by default on the client side. So you, you don't need them to be evaluated the second time on the server. Sure enough, we found a way to kind of take that all apart and we kind of worked together to figure out what a long-term plan looked like. Are there ways that we can process these documents without instrumenting Excel? It'll be a lot less error prone because just, you know, instrumenting a whole separate application as part of your processing pipeline, you know, there's a lot of moving parts there. So uh, that was a great opportunity where we got to work together and figure out different solutions. But it definitely was interesting because I saw a few different customers doing this, which also helps signal that there's a solution missing here. That if people are yeah. having to do it this way, there's a there's just a uh, you know there's an, a clear uh, need yeah there's a clear need somewhere this is what they have yeah. to resort to, and I mean don't get me wrong how the the way you described it it seems like they they created a clever little solution for a problem they were having it just they didn't think through the the whole thing like I've done that before I've I've snatched 100%. code off of Stack Overflow and I'm like hey this solves that problem let's use it. And then later realized that the code I snatched was like completely broken. Oops. Look what I just introduced to six different apps last week. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> it's, it's been done. Like nobody in IT that, that's been around for any length of time can not have a story to where they created this really cool looking duct tape bubble gum type solution to fix a problem. And then later realized that they broke a whole bunch of stuff because of it. And I, I think for a lot of us, you know, and, and this is where pen testers like you get, get your fun. IT deals with one fire at a time, one day at a time. And even though we'll get multiple fires in a day, we only have enough cycles to focus on one. And so these little fires sit there and smolder and burn. And then guys like you come along and they're like, hey, haha, look what I've got. Look what I've got. Look what I've got. And it's, it's the nature of the business. It's, it's 
problematic as it is, there's nothing you can do about it. And so this leads me to my other question. When it comes to assessments, do you prefer or do you advise that they be ongoing or should it be a, a one, one and done type deal? And when they are continuing assessments, how do you, how do you plan for that? What's your, what kind of timeline do you suggest? Yeah, no, that's great. I think kind of the industry standard are your annual penetration tests. And I think one of my favorite um, like stories when I think of a customer, um, of course, keep it anonymous and everything. And we've had a few customers take the same approach is we'll do a pen test report and we start to build a good relationship with the team. They ask for the same pen testers next year and then they, they keep upping the game. They keep making it harder. They keep locking things down. They're following all those recommendations. And then we keep trying to figure out oh, where they make a mistake. And we have these really great stories where, you know, we'll get to a year and we didn't get anything. And they just really kicked ass and they, you know, they, and, and that's what we love. To, I mean, I think that's the best thing is when you're working with a client over time and slowly the findings start to go away and you're really stretching for it. Um, that, that's, that just shows an awesome collaboration or, you know, maybe you're testing and they're like, we see you doing that. Or they, they show you the log, they, they message you the log files on Slack and they're like, we see what you're up to. They'll like, keep going, but we see you. <laughs> nice try, Junior. <laughs> Come yeah, back the yeah. next day. <laughs> 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 or you get that you get to like me you damn kids get off my lawn <laughs> yeah exactly right <laughs> yeah and i think that's so cool i i think that there's so much we can learn from each other and i think that sometimes the whole pen test mindset can be very adversarial but i think the best pen tests i've always had is where our the engineers are getting excited by some you know because really what we're finding are cool bugs mm -hmm. right and you know and all the engineers they, they love those types of things and when we can work together and we just have that excitement and that energy and they're coming up with some brilliant brilliant solutions to stopping some of the things we're trying i mean I, I think we all just have a great time learning from each other. And it, yep. those are, those are my favorite engagements. Oh no. And, and I, I remember, uh, long before I went into journalism and then back into the security industry, when I was still first starting out, we had a, it wasn't called a pen test back then. They actually called it a red team, uh, assessment. Mm -hmm. And so we had the, the red team came in and, you know, they're playing with the network, they're breaking things left and right. And, every day we would sit down with them and we were like, here's a list of all the crap we broke today. And we would be like, okay, how did you do that? <clears throat> and back then they would just say, oh, well, we did this and this. I'm like, well, how do we prevent that? Well, you need to talk to another engineer. And like, they weren't prepared to help us. Right. But I remember seeing like some of the things they were doing. I was like, that's cool. How did you pull that off? And the one that, that still comes to me to this day, um, we needed a quick way to save a laptop for uh, keeping, because it was dying, but it had some really uh, important stuff on it. And we couldn't get it backed up to the server because it, the, the NIC card was shot. The, the laptop itself was in an auto accident. And so we had a machine that could power up, but we couldn't connect it to the Wi-Fi. We couldn't connect it to the ethernet. And the hard drive was going, click. Oh, click that's the worst. And so Could we're like, all right, we've got to figure out a way to get this off. And so I remember I'm sitting at my desk and I've got one of these little USB external hard drive dealies. And I open the case on it and I see that it's a, a two and a half inch, uh, basically uh, laptop hard drive that's just powered into a USB adapter. And I'm like, oh, could it be? So I snatched the hard drive off of it and I go to the laptop and I plug that bad boy in and suddenly I can connect it to my computer and now I can start backing up data. And I was like, oh, this is brilliant. Now, what happens if I put this thing onto a, a little micro dummy terminal? I bet you I can put this bad boy on the network and we can get it uploaded. And sure, shit, we were. Boom. Got that bad boy plugged in. It's uploaded. I would forgot about that hard drive. <clears throat> I would forgot about the dummy terminal. I forgot about all this because that was a fire we dealt with that day. We solved the fire. We closed the ticket. And now in our little cube exists this tiny little box and this tiny little USB drive that I forgot about <clears throat> that's sitting on the network. And suddenly at one of their reports, they show this sensitive data to us. And I'm like, how the hell did you find that? Yeah, <laughs> and they were like, "Oh, well, this thing was on the network, and we looked at the IP uh, maps on the firewall. We're like trying to find this asset. We couldn't see it; like it's gone. But there it was, powered up, sitting in my cube, and it was just like right there. And we're like, "How is this not identified? What's going on?" 
Turns out it was on a different VLAN. And mm. because it was a flat network, they just hopped around mm. until they found it. But we weren't, we were expecting them to be on this and they went somewhere. And that's a scope issue, apparently. Uh, I learned later because, you know, like I've, I've never been like a, a serious policy type expert, you know, like defining the paperwork and everything. But yeah, I remember they sat down and they showed us. That. I was like, well, where the hell did you find that? No, 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 no. How did you get that? Like we, we, <laughs> that is not supposed to be out there. And they're like, oh yeah, it was sitting right there. And I go back to my desk and there it was. And I was like, oh shit, I forgot to turn it off. <laughs> and I mean, that's, that's literally these little basic mistakes is, is more often than not how, you know, things break. And it was a life lesson. Like, and to this day, I still think about it. You know, it's, it's not enough to fix a problem. You have to make sure that you, you totally secure the asset and, I wasn't thinking about security at the time. I was thinking about, you know, this particular salesperson has already had a bad week and now their their presentation and their work product is essentially lost. So that's months gone down the drain. And it's like, no, we're gonna fix this. We're gonna we're gonna get everything they need back. That's the only fire I was thinking about. I wasn't thinking about protecting the data. I wasn't thinking about, you know, like a, a, a IP address out there in the ether that you know nobody knew about. I was thinking about we've got to get this data backed up so we can put it on their new laptop and get them off. They're going to be back to work on Monday, no problems. Everything's exactly where it was on Friday, and we got that point, but we left that little hole, and that's where it came in. Sorry, went on a rant because it's still a. It, it, <clears throat> To me, I, I still get excited just thinking about the fact I'm staring at this little hard drive, this external hard drive, going, I wonder. Yeah. Rip the case off, and I'm like, "Oh, hot damn, this will work." <laughs> but, but I think that's I think that's such a big part is that I think sometimes you know, especially sometimes with like you know uh, high art management, they don't always realize the developers are having to do these like hot fixes all day mm -hmm. long, and there's no way to keep track of them because sometimes the pace is just so fast, the demand on features, this or that, or get this working, or yeah. so and so. Right? You had like an incident, you had to get like try and like get that presentation ready. Yeah, I, I, I had I had no choice in the matter. Like this was a damaged beyond repair laptop. The hard drive is violent, you know, fried. And the last backups we had on the server was a day prior to the important information being a part of this, this project. And so like, we had no way, like this data had to be saved. Like, what are we going to do? Like we had actually, until we figured out that the, the jump drive would work, we were going to send it out to a data recovery shop and pay like six thousand oh, yeah. dollars to have them you know get the stuff off this hard drive and like we were all prepared like we're gonna have to eat the cost on this like it's gonna have to go so much for our budgets next year like you know we wanted i remember at the time our big project we were thinking we were going to change the world and stand up a sharepoint server and um if we had had to have that driver covered sharepoint was gone there was no way we were going to do internal documentation and let me tell you, SharePoint, that's another problem. Well, <laughs> that's a conversation for a different time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, the um, the interesting thing about it, when we did our, our scheduling and everything like that, because we did annual as well, but we did them every six months because we had product rollout every six months. And so like when the new updates went out twice a yeah. year, about a month prior to the push out, we locked the the dev chain and that final update or that final product push, whatever, that's what the, the, the pen test got. And so they would come in just before we released everything and they would just smash it all to hell. And our dev team would work in sprints like 24, 24 hours at a time sometimes just to make sure all the patches. And before I left that company, we had gotten to a point to where we were still doing them twice a year, but the findings got smaller and smaller and smaller. And honestly, we attribute a lot of that to the development team who were ex red teamers themselves who really wanted to play with code. And so they just came in and that's what they started doing, but they would break each other's stuff. So like if you and I were working on the dev team and I finished something, I would give it to you to break and you'd be like, dude, fix this. And then I'd fix it. And that's what they ended up turning in. It used to frustrate them. And so I always thought it was really funny that like they took it personally when they were playing, like they, they would come in and test and if they couldn't find anything, they would be visibly upset at those meetings. And it's just like, why calm down? Yeah. Like, <laughs> dude, relax. The check's going to clear. Like, what are you worried about? Like, let it go. <clears throat> 
Yeah, so, and I, and I think that's part of it too. Is just that it's that mutual empathy and understanding of what the other person's accomplishing. I mean, like when I turn in findings, like there, I I. As excited as I get sometimes turning in a critical finding, I know if it's Thursday or Friday, I'm like, oh, this is going to suck. They're going to have to yep. work on the weekend. And I I just, I, I take extra time to make sure that recommendation has as explicit, as much information as I can help them try and hook them up to get them to be able to fix it quick. Because, huh. yeah. I mean, it, you, you have yeah. to, you have to kind of like, you know, you have to be like, I'm really sorry for this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but look, look, I got you. So yeah. here's what's broke here's how I broke it. And here's what you can do to not break it anymore. And if I give you all this on a Thursday, hopefully you can get this done within the next couple of weeks. Otherwise, sorry for your your weekend. But it's it's a thing to where like you can't help it because a lot of times when you get called into an engagement, and I've talked to other pen testers who are like this, like, they wait till the last minute. So this is exceedingly important. You have a crunch deadline that you have to finish by. And that does mean that when you turn in your refining, you, you've just ruined someone's holiday. You've just ruined someone's 100%. vacation. Like it's going to happen and you, you can feel bad about it, but there's also nothing you can do about it. Like you yeah. have to do your end. So <clears throat> we've had plenty of, of talk here about, you know, the policy behind red teaming, the, some of the stuff, interesting little story time, but I'm curious about you. Sure. One of the things um, those new to the industry talk about, you know, like when you see people who want to get into security, you know, they always talk about, I want to be a pen tester. I want to, you know, I want to do something. And I'm curious, how did you find your way into the security industry? What was your path and what led you to pen testing? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, funny enough, I mean, I, I think it, really it's when I was a kid and I saw the movie Hackers. I, I, I kid you not. The only reason I play guitar is because of School of Rock with Jack Black. I'm easily inspired by movies. That's just how it goes. But uh, yeah, I mean, something just hit me when I saw that movie. And, you know, I had a uh, one of my one of my friend's dads was a counter hacker uh, for a bank. And that that was the job title at the time was counter hacker. And I just remember he said, you know, I, he, he had a book and he said, you're not allowed to read this. It'll, it'll teach you too much. So of course, the next thing I do is I try and everywhere I can to try and go to the library and find a copy in the back of some library somewhere. And I just started learning everything I could. Do you, you remember know, what I, the book was? Do you remember the name of the book? Oh, I, I remember the picture on the front. I remember it was like, uh, I, it might've been called counter hacking or something like that. I remember or counter hackers handbook or something. I had like a red box. It had these like squiggly little gears and stuff. It honestly sounds like networking exposed. Um, Okay, I'll find that book. I'll, <laughs> I'll find that book. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll, I'll have to look it up afterwards. But yeah, I mean, I started reading that, and then from there, I just went down. And then I started going on to all the hacking exposed books, and yeah, and I, I just got really into it. And by the time you know, like fast forward, you know, I got to college. Um, I started off kind of doing engineering, and then you know, I didn't know that computer science. I didn't really, as much as I knew about security, it was always a hobby to me. I didn't know I could do it as a profession. And as soon as I started to learn. Uh, you know, that people did, you know, there were security engineers and people who were, you know, doing more of this hacking stuff. And like that, that job wasn't just a one-off job at that bank. I was like, oh man. So I went into computer science um, at, you know, at Georgia Tech. And I I just had a a great time. met some really cool people. We had a security club, we had a gray hat club and we were doing CTFs and stuff. And we just had a lot of fun. I I went into software development for a couple of years after that. Um, I did uh, high frequency trading and I also did, um, I worked at the Georgia Tech Research Institute doing like large scale malware analysis. And I, you know, at, at the end of it all, I ended up really missing security and I really wanted to get back in the pen testing. And I did a little bit at the the Research Institute and, uh, and I found Bishop Fox. I had a friend at Bishop Fox and I just kind of just, just kept diving into it further. I mean, I'd always had it as a side hobby, but just making it a job. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, like yeah. a lot of us got into security because that's just, it was cool. And that's what we yeah. wanted or old people like me and, and grandpa Steve will tell you when I first started, there was no security industry. In fact, security mm-hmm. was not a thing. Um, I had, I had two choices. So one day uh, boss came to me and said, Hey Steve, we're going to make you the new firewall person. You're going to deal with a lot of security. And I'm like, but I don't want to do that. Well, we're going to have to lay you off. Security sounds great. So let's, uh, let, let me go ahead and get the manual for that, that, that new, you know, fancy firewall thing there. And uh, I think it was a checkpoint. 
I think it was a checkpoint firewall, mm-hmm. like some mid nineties, late nineties. And, and it was one of those things to where like, all right, well, <laughs> I like having a paycheck. So go ahead and give me that manual. And that's literally where I got started in infrastructure link type security. And it's been insane. Like I, I was on a call and we were doing like this whole, um, ask an old guy type Q and a for people who wanted to get in the industry. And I, I remember giving this spiel. And one of the points I made was the fact that my head is swimming with knowledge that is absolutely useless these days. <laughs> I could tell you about products and, and architectures and services that just don't exist. Like they they're not used. And if you want to get into this industry, you have to be willing to learn things that you will only need once and you'll probably never need again. And then you have to be willing to just admit the fact that you don't know. Just be willing to admit that you don't know. And I think a lot of, there's a lot of disadvantage going on when people try to get into the industry now, because when you look at the recruiters and you look at the job postings, you know, for like an entry level job, they want you to have like three years experience. What? <laughs> huh? No, yeah. like entry level. Yeah. I expect you to at least have just gotten out of high school. And we're going to sit you in a cube and you're going to listen to this person and they're going to teach you what we want you to learn. Like that's entry level. And, and it's just, I don't know. It's so bizarre. Like, so if you were to tell someone in high school or someone in college, like, here are some things you should know and want to know if you're going to get into pen testing, what are some of your high points? Like, what are the things that come to mind first when you think of that? Yeah. So I think, you know, I actually did get to get a chance to mentor a high schooler who was really excited about pen testing. We had him as a summer intern at Bishop Fox for a couple of weeks, which was super cool. So I can definitely speak to that one. Um, you know, I think the the first part is for I for I can at least speak for offsec for offsec pen testing. Like you want to understand software development because if you don't, you know, it's funny. I, I I've met pen testers who don't really understand how the application works, and that works. Sometimes they can still find awesome bugs, but when it comes to being able to describe to the developer what went wrong and how they can fix it, they get stuck and they get frustrated. And I think that's something that's really empowering. When you really understand how to build these things, then you learn that security is just one bug class. It is just one type of bug that you're going to use defining. And it's understanding the roots of it and understanding all the different types of bugs that you're going to find those new security bugs. And I think that the, you know, just, 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 you know, being able to build, the better you can build, the better you're going to be able to break things apart. And so I, I think that's usually the advice I give. And there's just, there's so many great, I mean, with YouTube and just like all of the public write-ups these days, I mean, I just wish I had all that stuff. I remember just getting stuff off of like LimeWire and getting yeah. like the TXT files and stuff, all the stuff on text files now. Yep. All the, all the stuff that, that came out on text files. I remember swapping, um, uh, three and a half inch floppy disk that had nothing but text files on it and, and, you know, like password lists and, datagrams and things like this i remember dumpster diving and collecting manuals like the old router manuals and things like this like i remember the first time i ever actually hacked and i say that with air quotes around it because you know Mm -hmm. a lot of people wouldn't even consider that this day i i had played around trying to figure out the firewall because again like i told you i got this dumped on me and so i figured if i'm going to stand up this firewall and i'm going to play with it and use it to defend our organization, I should at least know how to get around it. Like what kind yeah. of what kind of roadblocks do we actually put up to an attacker versus what kind of open doors did I just leave and I don't realize? And a lot of the things I found were policy related, except one minor thing. We did, uh, you know, this was all brand new at the time. We're talking late 90s, okay? And so the whole next-gen smart firewall thing was like all the, the buzz and the hype. And remote management was like, ooh, you mean I can plug in a terminal and just manage it? when? Ooh, that's nice. Except that <laughs> port was always on. <laughs> right. <laughs> so if you knew where it was in the data center, you could always access it. So then... How do we figure out where it is in the data center? And I was just sitting there at my desk and I had nothing to do with that, that particular moment. And I'm like, huh, I wonder what happens if I just ping things at the data center. And then 
I started pinging on particular ports and I noticed that when I hit our IP at this particular port, it came back with, welcome, log in, please. Oh, right. my, my. And so we, we just, you know, tried random things and we logged in and then realized that wasn't our firewall. Oops. <laughs> Default creds. <laughs> and so, you know, and that technically would have been like the, the first hack and, and that, that I ever did. And it's not technically a hack, but it is because that wasn't our asset. And those were default creds. And we did scan a network until we found what we wanted. But at the same time, I remember calling that company up going, Hey, Terry, it's Steve. Uh, listen, buddy, you've got a problem. You might want to, you might want to fix this. And he's like, what's going on? I'm like, you know, uh, admin, admin's not wise, right? And he's what? <laughs> I'm just saying admin, admin's not wise. By the way, your uh, rule 13 there for your dev environment on VLAN 6, yeah, you might want to change that from any, any. How do you know what's on my firewall, Steve? Well, <laughs> I got a funny story for you. <laughs> and we had a good laugh about it. Like we went, we for that, that particular day at lunch, we went to um, a favorite spot in the business park where we all were. It's a TGI Fridays. And that tells you how lame we were back then. And so like, we're, we're hanging out and we're just sitting there like, so here's what I did. And he's like, well, I can't believe that worked. <laughs> like, yeah, it worked. <laughs> right. Well, some bitch, we'll, we'll get it fixed. And it was just one of those things. Like nowadays there'd be like a whole fight and blah, blah, blah. But back then it was just like, you were able to do what? Well, hell, I did. All right, we'll fix that. <laughs> but yeah, it was just one of those things. And now when, when you see it, like I, I've always, my advice is, and it mirrors somewhat what you're, you've said, is just learn how it works before you break it. Just learn how it works. So if you want to get into to networking and, and, you know, red teaming networks, fine. But understand how networking works, like what it actually is. You know, know how to build a network before you can break it. And my, my favorite type of, of testing is, is actually still firewalls mm. and WAFs in particular. Uh, mm -hmm. because there's so many ways that you can play with a WAF if, if, if it's not configured correctly. And so it, it's one of those things where, like, the only way I get anywhere on those is because I do understand, you know, the premise of database connections and how they work. I do understand how the, to manipulate U URIs to, to play with whatever I want to play with on the other end. And it, it's just a thing. Like, I know how that stuff was built, so I know how to break it. But if you were to sit me down in front of like an app and say, okay, what are all the flaws in this app? I don't know. I wouldn't even know how to tell you to, to start out a look. I can't code to save my life. Like that's not, that's not what I know. But I guess to, to kind of, to bring us out on this, when it comes to your industry, your section of the industry in particular, what are your, your pet peeves? What have you seen that if you can change it or make it like, you, you know, like a, a hard, fast rule to do something or to not do something? What, what are your what are your pet peeves? You know, I, th I think one of the biggest pet peeves is that I think like you're saying, like, you know, security has become increasingly like a, a big deal, like more and more people are caring about it. But not everyone's caught up with like the understanding and, the, you know, they're some of the, the people implementing and getting the pen test done aren't at a level of caring or understanding. And I think one of the pet peeves is like, let's say you do a pen test, you provide some awesome recommendations, you give it to the customer, you come back next year, and it's the same thing. Nothing got fixed, everything's still there. And you're like, what am I supposed to do? Like, you know, I, I spent all this time working and trying to give them something that would really help. And, you know, they either just didn't have the resources or time or whatever. And that's the worst thing. I mean, I, I really feel for the companies who, when I talk to their the, the, the guy, he's like, nothing's fixed. He tells me, he's like, look, he's like, I didn't have the budget. I didn't have the resources. He's like, you know, maybe you guys can find some more things, but he's like, I only have budget for these tests. He's like, I, I just can't get the manpower to fix them. And I, I feel for that. I mean, that sucks. I think that's indicative of a much, much larger problem in the industry, not just security, but IT as a whole. It's the fact yeah. that companies drop all of this weight on the one individual and they're like, okay, Atlas moved the planet. By the yeah. way, we're not giving you any kind of strength or core training today, so good luck. And they walk away with it and it, it's frustrating. I think that's that in particular is where you see a lot of burnout come from. 
not 100%. just in the, in the pen testing industry, but also like in IT is the fact that I get these reports twice a year telling me everything that's wrong. And you tell me that because these things are wrong, I'm not going to meet my metrics and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not yes. doing my job right. But you don't give me the opportunity to fix these problems. And it's a vicious, vicious cycle. And then on your end, you're scanning this company and doing all this work for nothing. Like the report you gave me last, last year could actually be the report you hand me today. Thank you. Have a nice day. Cause that's it. Nothing changed. And so that would burn you out after a while, or at least get you to a point to where you don't care as much. And I'm not saying you in, in particular, I just mean like pen testing. Of course. And it's, it's just, how, how do you, you break out of that cycle? And the thing is that has to change way above us. That's, that's like way out of our pay grade. And unless it does, we're going to have these little, little problems, but it's encouraging. There is encouragement. We're going to end on a positive note. Like you said, security has taken off. It's become a big deal over the last <laughs> like five, 10 years. And one of the things that's come out of that now is, is enterprises are starting to look at security as a revenue generating thing. Like if we're secure, then we're, the business is solid and the business will grow. The business is enabled. And because of that mindset, which probably isn't the best mindset in the world, but it's a, it's a mindset, they're giving more budget, they're giving more time, they're allocating more resources. And that is enabling slow but steady growth. And if we can maintain that, then I think we'll be okay. So with that said, <clears throat> this has been an awesome conversation. I do appreciate you joining me. So, Jake, if people wanted to reach out to you on uh, the social medias or the internets, where can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my uh, hacker handle is The Bumble um, or on Twitter at The Bumble Sack. Uh, you can find my research on thebumble.io or you can DM me on Twitter. I'm always <laughs> happy to respond and answer questions. Awesome. Jake, thanks for joining me. My name is Steve Reagan. You can find me online, Twitter is SteveD3, and of course, technicaloutcast.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you soon.